All right, good morning, guys. We are looking at a very famous psalm, a very famous confession of brokenness and sin from a famous king named David this morning. And if anybody was going to be canceled in our culture for their sin, it would have been David. Okay, get this. David was not only a political leader, a powerful man, he was also a religious leader because he was leading a theocracy. And what he decided to do was when he was up on his roof, he was supposed to be out at war, he saw a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. And so he told her that she must come over to his house so that he could essentially rape her. She got pregnant. Her husband was part of the army. And David quickly realized that he would be in trouble because everyone would realize that she didn't get pregnant by her husband. So she calls, he calls her husband back home and kind of orders him to go home and sleep with his wife. But her husband Uriah was an honorable guy. And so he's like, nope, I'm not going home when my troops are out on the battlefield. So David sends him back out on the battlefield, tells the rest of the troops to pull back when Uriah goes forward and Uriah dies on the battlefield. So we have a king who is guilty of rape and murder. And in our culture, what happens, especially when a person in power is guilty of even less egregious sins than these, we cancel them. The mob comes for you. Social media blows up. Everyone asks the question, how could somebody do something like that? And we have an interesting character named God who interjects himself in David's story and does something that at first is offensive to us, but then is amazing. He forgives him. And we're going to see the simple truth in this passage that God loves sinners. And here's the choice we're going to have to make. Am I going to be or remain part of the self-righteous mob, the judge, or am I going to admit that I'm more like David than I realize often? So, first of all, we're going to see in the text the complexity of our sins. So, Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6 say this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
So David comes to this point of realization after a long time and being called out for his sin that he did in fact sin. And he says something strange to our ears. He says to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Bathsheba, who's still alive, I'm thinking, wait, didn't you also sin against me? You raped me and killed my husband. How can David's sin be against God and him only? Here's what I think is happening. I don't think that David is making excuses at this point. I think he's realizing that ultimately his sin is against God. Now, this is really important for a person as powerful as David. Because in that day, he was the absolute authority. He was unquestioned. This was a a monarchy. Not like a fake monarchy like in England right now, but like a real monarchy. Like the king says something, it happens. Absolute political leader. And he is realizing that he had used his power to abuse other people, but that he was not without accountability. God, the judge of all the earth, had put him in charge to shepherd the people of Israel with justice. Now, the rule of law was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That is, the punishment is supposed to fit the crime, which is what our justice system is based on in the United States. And the interpersonal rule was love your neighbor as yourself. And David's realizing, I broke both of those commands. I failed to act as God has called me to act. He recognizes real moral guilt. He's not letting himself get away with it just because he's the king and he had the power to do so. Which reminds us all that when it comes to sin, we are a real moral self. I've done wrong. I've broken God's commandments. Now, what tends to happen is that on the fundamentalist side of Christianity, wrongdoing at the moral level is acknowledged. But it's simplified and explained in such a way that it's basically like you've got the good people and the bad people, and the only explanation for people doing bad things is that they weren't as good as we are. David acknowledges there is a moral self and you are guilty and that needs to be acknowledged. But he also acknowledges something else in the passage that's really interesting. He brings two things together that we normally don't bring them together. He recognizes that he's done what is evil in God's sight, but then in the next sentence he says, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, okay, listen, I did what was wrong. I did what was evil. I sinned against God. I broke his commandments. I am guilty and worthy of punishment. But wait a second, that's not the only contributing factor that led me to this point. I've been like this since before I was born. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. So I think he's both talking about, listen, my parents were sinners, and so as they raised me, they put an example before me of what it's like to sin in word, thought, and deed. And I had this propensity to sin, this desire for sin, from the time I was born. So you've got fundamentalists saying, listen, the reason that you sin is because there's a moral self and you chose to do wrong, so it's your fault. And then you have sort of therapeutic secular culture, which says, what sin? I was born this way. Like, this isn't my fault. I was born this way. I shouldn't be held accountable for it. And then you have David saying, this was my fault. I was wrong, and I was born this way. Both things brought together into one. So the complexity of our sinfulness and our sinful nature is that it's both not our fault and we're fully responsible for it. Which I think helps explain our internal reaction to real sin. Here's my guess, is that you're a lot like me when you do something especially that you could have never imagined yourself doing. You simultaneously feel guilty and there's a sense of disbelief. You're like, wait a second. It seems almost inevitable that I would have done this. Like I was born this way and I had a propensity as long as I could remember to do this sort of thing. And I know that I'm guilty. Now, I see this all the time in my household because I have twins. And I feel like twins are like a great psychological study and like also a spiritual study. Okay? So let me give you an example of this. I remember when my daughters are in Hazel were in kindergarten. My wife and I had a conversation with them because they were having to make decisions about what they were going to eat and drink at lunch. And so this was initiated by their mom, not my idea, but I backed her up on it. She said, listen, I want you girls to drink white milk four days a week, Monday through Thursday, and chocolate milk on Fridays. And so we let that go for a while, and, and then, you know, you got to... Um, inspect what you expect. So after a while, it was like dinner time, you got to ask the question, like, how's this going? And so one night at dinner, I asked Ari and Hazel, I said, how's it going? And Hazel immediately just kind of perks up. And she's like, well, I've been getting white milk Monday through Thursday. And then I treat myself to chocolate milk 
on Fridays. And it was like, you could just see like the ding off of her tooth. Okay, so what you see in Hazel is that she has more of like a propensity toward self-righteousness, right? Some of us are like that. We're like the older brother. It's like, yep, I'm living for mom and dad's approval and check this out, I'm doing it. Look, pin the gold ribbon or the blue ribbon on my chest. And then, okay, Aria hears Hazel say this and Aria's head just slumps, right? At the dinner table. And she just goes, I've been drinking chocolate milk every single day and I, this is, wait, this is the best part. She goes, I've been drinking chocolate milk every single day and I can't stop. Right? And she's just like, ugh, like this is, this is terrible. Right? Well, okay, here's the thing. They're in kindergarten. Like, and yet they're so different temperamentally. And some of you are immediately, you're identifying with Aria, right? You're like a pleasure seeker. You're a person who's like, if I want it, I'm going to get it. And your tendency is more to those sort of rebellious ways. Some of you, you're like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Your tendency is more toward like self-righteousness, pride, those types of things. But what you see is that it's a result both of being born that way and choices that we make that lead to the ways that we sin. And so some of us, we need to acknowledge that we have sinned. We, we just simply need to say, yep, what I've done has been evil, not just because of the way it hurts other people, but I have broken God's commands in thought, word, and deed. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of us, have acknowledged that, and we spend all of our time beating ourselves up. And we need to recognize that we are not just a moral self, we are also an injured self. That we were born into a story that is outside of our control. That we have been sinned against, and that we were born with a sin nature. And we need more than just moral commands. We need compassion. David comes into the presence of God, acknowledging he's done wrong and he needs help. That's how all of us are. So first of all, we saw the complexity of sin. Second of all, we see the nature of repentance. Look with me at verses 8 through 17. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. 
O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What we see here is that repentance, in a biblical sense, is about the exact opposite of what we normally think that it is. When most of us think of repentance, we think of something mainly negative. We think of getting to the point where you feel so bad that you go into the presence of God and you join him in beating yourself up. David walks into the presence of God having committed heinous sin. And here's what I think he was a little bit surprised to see. He acknowledged his guilt, the complexity of his sin nature. He looked up at the face of God, and I'm sure part of him was expecting to see disappointment. And here's what he got. A smile. God wasn't angry at him anymore. You see, when we sin, it's like we are turning our back on God. God always stays in the same position, face toward us. And we think that we're not seeing his face because he's turned his back on us. But the truth is, we're not seeing his face because we're too afraid to turn our face toward him. And David finally turns around, looks at the face of God, and he's like, no way. You're, you're not mad? You're not disappointed? You're welcoming me into your presence? And you see it in David's language because you only ask this boldly to somebody that you trust deeply. And David starts like exploding with questions. He's like, let me hear joy and gladness. He's like, could you make me happy again? He says, don't hide your face from my sins. Blot out my sins. Create in me a clean heart. Look, I want you to do an inner transformation because I realize that even though like sin was at bay in me for a, a while, now it broke out of my soul and I realized there's some ugliness and some dirtiness in there I didn't know was there before. Could you do something in me where you clean out my heart and renew my spirit? Give me strength, give me vitality, not to go my own way and do my own thing, but to follow after your will. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. Notice what's not happening with David in the presence of God. This is often what we think of as repentance. We think of promising God that we'll do better. He doesn't promise God that he'll do better. He asks God 
to do something new in him. Promising to do better is not repentance. Because it's still self-focused. Asking God to cleanse your heart and change your life is the essence of repentance because it is finally coming to the end of yourself and acknowledging that sin is too deep and you can't reform yourself. Listen to what David says. He says, listen, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. Here's what God wants from broken people like us. He wants a frank acknowledgement. My heart is broken. That is, I am an injured self and a contrite spirit. That is, I am a guilty self. See, God wants you to come into his presence as you are, not as you think you should be. Broken, sad, injured, beat up, deeply guilty. And what you will find if you will come like that to God is that you will see a smile on his face which will encourage you to ask him to change you from the inside out. Doesn't this remind you of the story of the prodigal son? You remember, the prodigal son's a long way from home. He's eaten with the pigs. And he comes to this realization like, if I went home right now, I could at least be one of my dad's hired servants. I wouldn't be eating with the pigs anymore. So I might as well go home because it's better to be one of my dad's hired servants than it is to be homeless. And so he starts to make his way home. And the text says when he's still a long way off, his dad sees him and starts running Toward him. God is like that. He's just asking you to take one step toward home, to turn around, to look at him, to trust that he is not like our culture, he's not like your dad. He will embrace you and forgive you and change your life. That's the essence of Christianity. That's what it's all about. It's about coming to a God of grace and expecting his smile, not his wrath. How can we expect that? It's the last question we're asking of the text. And it's the whole basis for the psalm. It's the reason that we have this psalm, and that's the character of God. Go back to the beginning of the psalm with me, Psalm 51, 1 through 2. 
This is why David came into the presence of God and acknowledged his sin and began to repent. This is what he believed about God. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen, he believed that God was a God both of mercy and of steadfast love. So much so that he says to God, not wash me out of your mercy, cleanse me out of your steadfast love, but he says, come to me according to your mercy and according to your steadfast love. What's he acknowledging? He is acknowledging the simple truth that God is love. God is rich in mercy. God is abundant in steadfast love. We do not come to a God who lacks resources when it comes to loving us. We come to a God who is full of mercy and steadfast love. Mercy is in compassion withholding punishment that we deserve. Steadfast love is continually giving us what we don't deserve. Favor. Blessing. And David is recognizing that his sin, even though it is incredibly egregious, does not, like it does at the human level, have the ability to wear down or deplete the love and the mercy of God. God is not tired of him. God does not feel like, oh, David again with sin. Shoot. Now I got to put up with this guy. Now I got to deal with this. He is so high maintenance. I am so tired of listening to all of his problems. This is unreal. Because what he sees is that God is overflowing and abundant. God is like a fountain, not like a stagnant pond. Not like, okay, take a bucket. Okay, there's mercy. Um, oh, the, I've sinned enough that the pond is going down. It's like a fountain that's continually overflowing, bubbling over, never ending in mercy. That is what God is like. So imagine that you're at the ocean and you've got like a bucket of just disgusting filth, like raw sewage. And you just take that bucket of filth and the, the tide is coming in and the ocean is just crashing against the shore. And you take that bucket of raw sewage and you just take it and you throw it out into the ocean. How long are you going to be able to see it? 10 seconds? Why? Because the ocean is so vast 
that it swallows up whatever is put into it almost instantaneously. And yet we think about our sin, that our sin could somehow pollute the ocean of God's love. Like, I've done it now. I've turned God's goodness into anger this time. My little sin, my sewage is going to turn the ocean of his love into sewage. That is not honoring to God. Beating ourselves up at the end of the day is questioning his love. He wants us to so believe him, to so trust him, that even if we mess up like this, we still come home. I think that's the test of true and genuine Christianity. An author named Brennan Manning said this after 33 years of walking with Jesus. He said, In the years since I was first ambushed by Jesus, I am now utterly convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus will ask one question and one question only. Did you believe that I loved you? That I desired you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers will respond and say, I believed in your love and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. But many of us who are faithful in our ministry, our practice, our church going, are going to answer, well, frankly, no, sir, I never really believed it. Get this. And there's the difference between real believers and the nominal Christians that abound in our churches across our land. Do you believe that God loves sinners? That he loves you? Not that he loves the whole world. Not that he loves the person that you brought to church this morning. Not that he loves your spouse. Not that he loves your kids. Not that he is love. But that he loves you. The real you. Not the you that you're trying to pretend to be the injured you, the sinful you, the really deeply guilty you. That you can walk into the throne room of God and expect embrace, not shame or condemnation. That is the God of the Bible. The reason that people go to hell is not because they are sinners. Everybody's a sinner. The reason that people go to hell is because they don't believe that God is love. That they won't come to him. Now, on what basis can we come? We know a lot of information that David did not know specifically about the finished work of Jesus. Listen to what Colossians 2, verses 13 through 14 says. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Why did God not cancel David? Why will God not cancel you? Because all of your sin and David's sin and my sin was canceled on Jesus. The Christian message is not you can get away with murder and rape. The Christian message is Every disobedience receives a just retribution. On the cross, God was not just being loving, he was just. And here's what God says is just. Either you pay for your sin forever, or your sin is punished on Jesus. The good news that I have for you is that your sin was punished on Jesus if you simply believe. I am a sinner. I cannot reform myself. I need someone to reform me. Jesus did this by taking your place on the cross and clothing you in his perfection and filling you with his spirit. So here's my vision for our church. Here's what I think is going to transform this community and will trickle out into the world. If instead of embracing canceled culture, we embrace canceled culture. Here's how you know you've embraced canceled culture. Canceled culture. When instead of saying, I can't believe that that person did that, you say, I'm just like that. Guys, David was a man after God's own heart. He wrote a large chunk of the Bible. He was more godly than any of us in the room. Had a higher calling than any of us will ever have in the room. And he sinned like this. All of us are capable of anything. Our sin runs that deep. But God's grace is greater. And what we have to offer the world is not our self-righteous moral performance. What we have to offer the world is Jesus. And we can say to our friends and neighbors something better than be like me, be moral like me, vote politically like me, do what I do. We can say, like David is saying to us here, if God can forgive me, he can forgive anyone. I have not found a congratulations from God for my good performance. 
I have found mercy and steadfast love from God over and over again in response to my poor performance. What a beautiful message. Come to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that this is really the message of the Bible. That you love sinners. I, I would have given up a long time ago. I would have walked away because I can't keep up. I can't do enough. There's certain things that I do that I don't want to do and sins that I commit over and over again that I thought I'd be long past by now. And God, I ask that you would show us as a church mercy, steadfast love, would you be true and faithful to us even when we are faithless? And God, I pray that there'd be people in this room this afternoon or maybe even in this moment who have their back turned to you, who would maybe even just look over their shoulder at your face and that they would see that you are not angry that your wrath was poured out on Christ, that you're a father who runs to them, who loves them, who embraces them. That that would so take over our hearts that we couldn't help but invite those around us into your steadfast love and mercy, that we would be okay with being sinners, not seen as righteous, that we would let you be the hero and that we would have the joy of basking in your love. In Jesus' name I pray.